Welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast. My name is Lucas. And I'm Travis. We're Southern men de-reconstructing the South. And tonight, uh, I, I apologize. Well, and this- uh, Adi, can you can you say your name for me one more time? All right, yeah. So yeah, my name is um, Adi Schliebusch. So Adi is uh, short for Adrian. So, um, but I think I think um, my first name normally isn't the problem. It's the last name that people yeah. people um, struggle with. So the last name is Schliebusch. It is. Um, I always tell people to break it up. Schlier and then Bush, like just like George Bush. Um, Schlier Bush. Um, there you go. That's absolutely, absolutely perfect. So, um, as you probably can imagine, it's a German surname. My ancestors come from um, Western uh, Germany uh, near Cologne. Um, uh, Cologne, there's actually a, a town which uh, is still known by the name Schlebusch Leverkusen. I mean, so it was, it's actually a city now, but it was two towns, uh, neighboring towns. One was named Schlebusch, one was named Leverkusen, and uh, and the two towns joined together. And um, yeah, so today it's known as the city of Schlebusch Leverkusen. So yes, my ancestry is... Um, I'm a Boer. I'm a Boer from from South Africa, but uh, my ancestry is uh, predominantly German, and then also um, I'm of Dutch and French Huguenot descent. Well, fantastic, man! Um, so tell us a, a little bit about your work at the Pactum Institute. Uh, how did that get started, and and what really is the goal there? Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I guess there were two um, major developments that led to me starting the Pactum Institute last year. One was um, more of a cultural and a theological development, and one was more a personal um, calling on my part. So um, in terms of the developments in the theological landscape, um, I consider myself a spiritual heir of, you know, the Christian reconstructionists of the 20th century and <clears throat> most notably uh, R.J. Rushduni. So um, uh, I saw that many of the organizations that call themselves um Theonomist. Now, Theonomist, for those listeners who might not be familiar, is the, is the uh, doctrine of God's law and the authority of God's law. So, Theonomy derived from the Greek Theos, God, and Nomos, which means law, simply means um, the law of God is the ultimate standard for all societies of all times um and that politically and socially um nations are called to obedience to christ as lord 
and his law. But yes, but what I, what I saw was that many of the organizations who were claiming to promote this principle um, really degenerated away from um, the ideals of guys like, you know, R.J. Roche, Dooney, um, Bonson, and so on. And, um, and embraced, actually, quite frankly, um, embraced um, cultural uh, Marxist views on um, certain issues, especially on the doctrine of um, natural fictions, which we will be discussing today. And they're very, also very libertarian um, leanings. Uh, I know one organization, American Vision, um, which which claimed to be um, the enemy, the anonymist organization. They were led by a guy. Um, oh, thank God I forgot his name because it's not worth remembering. Um, Joe McDermott. Joe McDermott was oh, the guy. Who, uh, yeah, yeah. Who, uh, who, um, who led them and he, he really, you know, gradually drifted completely away from the original principles um, that, you know, American vision used to stand for to the point that, you know, eventually people, he himself and people in his circle admitted that, you know, for all practical purposes, he is not anything remotely to a a, a Christian theonomist anymore. You know, you saw the same with the Calcedon Foundation in California, um, which employed a Bulgarian Marxist by the name of uh, Bojidar Marinov. Um, and so, so, yeah, in short, I um, saw these organizations completely drift away from, um, from their original intent. And it kind of left a vacuum um, for me, evidently, in terms of um, getting a academic research institute out there, um, which advocates for um, classical uh, theonomic uh, post-millennial principles. And uh, so, yeah, that was... That was the one reason behind me um, launching the Pactum Institute. And the second reason was the fact that I am an, I was, well, I guess I'm still a academic with nothing to lose because um, I, uh, after graduating with my PhD in uh, 2018, um, I kind of realized that I developed a reputation as, you know, what, what the left would consider a right-wing thinker, a right-wing bigot. So I am, um, I kind of, as I sent around my resume for, you know, job applications at uh, colleges, teaching positions, research positions, um, I uh, kind of realized that nobody wants to associate with me. At first, at first, um, you know, I thought, you know, it might just be the tough job market. 
um, that that might be the only factor. But then in September, um, in well, in August of uh, 2020, um, just about two years ago, I actually got a research position as a research fellow at a local university in South Africa. And um, they sent me my job contract and um, it looked great. And I signed it on my end, sent it back. And I was supposed to start in my new position on the 1st of September 2020. And um, about mid-August, they contacted me and told me, no, um, there's an objection against your appointment because of your uh, right-wing political views. Um, the university doesn't want to associate with you. So in a sense, I was, I think providentially it was a good thing that they expressly told me that, you know, they sent me a letter actually signed by the Dean of the Faculty of um, Humanities um, because the research position would have been at the, the uh, Department of Philosophy. Um, and uh, so they sent me a letter and um, I guess um, that kind of was the trigger. Um, that made me sit back, pray about this, realize, look, um, Adi, you, you're not having a future in institutional academia. You, uh, you know, you've got to make peace with that. So um, God gave you this talent. Um, what are you going to do? So um, I contacted a few of my friends uh, around the world, really, um, asked them if they would uh, be willing to contribute to a research institute, carrying on the spirit of, you know, essentially the Chalcedon Foundation of old. You know, the Chalcedon Foundation of the days of R.J. Rushdie. So that is essentially what I wanted to do. I said, you know, um, we've got this great heritage um, in theonomy, Christian Reconstructionist um, uh, books, literature, um, you know, um, even, even guys like Gary North, who passed away just a few month, months ago, um, Bonson, Rush Dooney, uh, Gordon Clark, uh, Cornelius Ventil, you know, these guys um, did immense, immense work. And, um, and I felt a calling um, by the Holy Spirit pressed upon my heart to continue that tradition and to continue that legacy and steward, you know, in a sense, Steward that legacy. So the irony is, I'm running an international um, Christian um, theonomic research institute um, with 85, 90 percent of our donors are from the United States, and uh, yeah, I'm doing it all the way from um, the southern end of Africa. So it's it's um, interesting how providence works and how um, the world works these days. That's but, pretty fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and you know, technology. Uh, I, I believe you know, technology has 
its downsides, but I believe, you know, uh, it's also a gift from God, which uh, should be used to his glory. So, yeah, um, so far, so good. So far, so good. We've published um, three, four academic articles. We've published a couple of books um, during the first year of the Institute. So, yes, by God's grace, um, all is well, and uh, my work is very, very blessed. So, so you you were saying earlier that uh, you were having some uh, run-ins with with other theonomists, um, especially in terms of the thing of natural affections. Um, yes. I, I've had the same run-ins literally yesterday uh, with some of that same crowd. But what what makes natural affection like? What is natural affections? What makes it so? What makes it the boogeyman that they want to run from and hide from? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, so, I'm, yeah. Sorry, continue, please. Oh no, no, no. Go ahead. Well, I mean, what makes it the boogeyman, right? I mean, because I'm looking at it, and it just it just looks like common sense to me. But then other people are are you know they'll look at it and they'll see. You know, basically, literally Nazis. <laughs> All right. yeah. So, uh, so, but anyway. Um. So yeah. Um, yeah. So, so by natural affections, um, we or uh, you can say the doctrine of natural affections. We mean those relational affections which constitute an integral part of being human in accordance with God's design for humanity um, as he created humanity in his image. So before, um, sorry, before uh, I continue to explain any further, you know, you were asking why, why it's such a boogeyman actually. So um, I think in a sense, you have to go back to the French Revolution um, and um, and the aftermath of the French Revolution in the rise of Marxism in the 19th century. Because uh, really before um, the end of the 18th century, before the French Enlightenment, I really don't see any societies um, in history, anywhere in the world where natural affections was really a controversial thing. But the French Revolution um, really launched a very aggressive attack on the family. So the family, um, the family unit um, was a major threat to the ideals of French philosophers like um, Diderot, Voltaire, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. They, um, because ultimately they wanted to collapse the those societal structures which threatened the rise of the all-powerful and centralized state. Um, so if you have, you know, we know this, 
living in 2022, it's no surprise for us. You know, if you have um, healthy families, the rise of totalitarianism becomes increasingly <clears throat> difficult. So um, the attack that Marxism in particular in the uh, 19th century launched on um, the family was very much integrally um, tied to um, their ideal of a not only a totalitarian state, but a universal totalitarian state. So one where, um, you know, what we would call today a one world government, where you essentially um, have no um, borders, um, borders between people of any significance. Um, and, you know, essentially you have the United Nations and the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank um, governing the entire globe um, with one central government, one central agenda. And if you know your Bible, if you know Christian history, this is actually not a very, um, it's not a, such a revolutionary idea. This is essentially <clears throat> new Babylonism. You know, it's essentially the um, idea of, you know, uh, reconstructing a modern 20th, 21st century um, Tower of Babel. But yeah, about, about the... Um, natural affections or the doctrine of um, natural affections. It is rooted in God creating us in his image um, with the ability to love. So, for example, um, we know that the natural affection between or the natural love between a father and a son is one of those natural and biological relationships which reflect the image um, of the Trinitarian God, since God himself mm, reveals himself as Father and Son, so as to enable us to understand that relationship between the two persons of the Godhead. In other words, the Bible has divine revelation presupposes a certain unique affection between a father and a son as the framework for understanding the nature of God. In this sense, the nature of God is reflected in the nature of man by virtue of those natural affections within the family, like, you know, the relationship between a father and a son. So, of course, we um, also find the same analogy when Christ speaks of the church as his bride. You know, so there's this um, there's natural affection between a husband and a wife um, as the foundation of the family um, being an analogy of God's redemptive, redemptive love for his church and his children in Christ. And of course, um, you know, this week we saw the um, court 
overturn a Roe v. Wade. And, um, you know, when I, I saw the news broke, I, uh, and I was preparing for this podcast, um, I kind of also thought of the fact that, you know, the reason, the reason that abortion, the reason that abortion is such, such a grave sin and that, you know, somebody like um, John Calvin calls abortion, you know, the reformer John Calvin calls, calls abortion worse than murdering someone in the field or in the town is because it violates it violates that sacred relationship between a mother and a child and that natural God-ordained affection that should exist um, normatively between a mother and a child within um, God's design or in accordance with God's design. So abortion as a violation of that natural affection is a very big part of what makes abortion such a heinous sin. So, of course, we have, um, because the family is the basic unit of society and society originates from the family, um, there are extinctions, you know, um, societal existence in itself, um, human society in itself is essentially um, relationships that extend uh, upon the family and upon those natural familial affections. Um, so, of course, we have the prime example of grandparents and grandchildren. You know, grandparents and grandchildren are ultimately um, two generations apart, but they are connected and covenantly connected by a blood relationship, a relationship of lineage. So if you, uh, if you would allow me just to quote the um, 17th century Calvinist, um, German Calvinist philosopher um, John Althusius. Um, Althusius explains the principle of natural fictions as follows. He's, he writes, For this is the order and progression of nature that the conjugal relationship or the domestic association of a man and a wife um, is called the beginning and the foundation of human society. From it are then produced the associations of various blood relations and in-laws. From them, in turn, come the assemblies. Out of their union arises the composite body that we call a village, a town, or a city, or a county. You could also add in the American context. But Odysseus <clears throat> continues... It is necessary, therefore, that the doctrine of the symbiotic life of families, kinship associations, assemblies, cities, and provinces precede the doctrine of the realm or the kingdom or the universal symbiotic association that arises 
from these associations. So, <clears throat> Odysseus is saying that um, the family is the basic unit of society, and then societal relationships in terms of their priorities, in terms of um, importance, um, derive from the family and their proximity to um, the family as basic unit. So um, essentially, to answer your question, natural affections constitute those affections which accompany those covenantal relationships in which we have been purposely placed by divine providence and for the glory of God. Okay, so I want to <clears throat> I want to uh, insert a couple of things here. Number one, we had a pretty good question uh, from the chat that I want to bring in here, yeah. and uh, this is going to catch you completely off guard, I imagine. Uh, when can we expect your academic book on natural affections to drop? Uh, yeah, that is, and um, that is a very good question. Um, I guess when um, I have even less to lose. Um, you know, um, I still, when my kids are out of the house and um, they can take care of themselves, then I'll publish the book. In the meantime, in the meantime, I'll publish um, slightly less controversial topics. Now, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm kidding. Um, I'll, I'll probably do it long before that. Um, um, I'm actually, I'm actually working on a second book um, right now, which is about um, conf the confessionalization, confessionalization of families, communities, and nations. So I, in the historic part of the book, I trace how European. European civilization was essentially um, Christianized, not by means of thousands or millions of individuals converting to Christianity, but by means of little pockets initially of families. Families converting, baptizing their children, Eventually, nations converting from the post-Nicene period, um, nations converting from the 4th, 5th century AD. And uh, eventually, you know, by the high Middle Ages, we had European Christendom. So, um, and I discussed then, you know, how... Um, we apostatized, sadly, for the past 200 years, and the way forward in terms of reconfessionalizing, and I use that word confessionalizing because I want to convey the idea of not only public, but uh, not only private, but public religion, you know, um, Christianity is a covenantal religion, so it's not it's not something you simply practice um, in your living room or in a church building on a Sunday between nine and ten. Um, it is a it is a very um, 
holistic worldview which transforms every aspect of society. So I, I discuss how we deconfessionalized after the French Revolution and the Enlightenment event. Well, especially after the two world wars, after World War One and Two, of course, it um, got exponentially worse. Um, so how we deconfessionalized and how we uh, should start by reconfessionalizing our family life. So as to, um, from the family, rebuild Christendom on a local level, um, and, and then, you know, uh, extend this rebuilding from the family to other kinship associations, eventually to the nation. So in, in um, even though my next book isn't expressly about natural affections as such, um, as you can imagine, um, the topic of natural affections actually will play a pretty big part. Um, so I, I had a couple of things that I, it, it's a, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it, I think we'll be able to tie it in a little later. Um, so a few things that you mentioned during your, during your, uh, your comments so far, um, I'm going to go back to the theonomy issue. Um, now I've, I've been a libertarian for a long time, uh, before the last year, I think. Um, uh, last year was when I, I like to say the last bit of libertarianism got beat out of me. Um, oh, yeah. and, and you became a man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a so the, 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 the theonomy versus autonomy issue in your mind, is there a way in which, autonomy would have any place in the Christian worldview? Well, um, it, it kind of depends on what you, what you mean, um, with autonomy as such, because, um, autonomy from God, you know, being autonomous from God has absolutely no place in the Christian worldview. So when, um, the the dichotomy the dichotomy between theonomy and autonomy um, was actually coined well first well first articulated by um, the Dutch uh, systematic theologian Herman Bolling so Bolling wrote um, that you know he, he coined the phrase there is no alternative between theonomy and autonomy. Um, between God's law or man's law, um, uh, which um, Van Til used so often and Rushdini eventually. So, uh, so in that sense, I would say no, in the sense that God and Jesus, God in Jesus Christ, um, claims absolute, absolute sovereignty over every square inch of existence. But uh, if you speak of 
autonomy in terms of um, um, natural relationships or in terms of um, uh, relationships of authority and submission in society in the state um then most certainly it does um i think freedom of conscience is a principle which i hold in very high regard i would say that um of course um you know we had the very practical issue of vaccine mandates um over the past couple of years um so the question then you know um the state um forcing people you know to take an experimental mrna shot and then you know we you kind of um people rightly appealed to a principle of bodily autonomy of um making your own decisions um not only for yourself but also for your family and then of course um speaking from my own um political context um as a boot in south africa we are constantly seeking to become more autonomous from this central government um you know from um being governed by a uh, black Marxist uh, majority. So we we seek autonomy, we seek self-determination in our own homeland. Um, so in that sense, yes, certainly what I, the beef, the beef I do have with the libertarian view of the social order is this, uh, essentially they view the basic constitutional unit of society in the libertarian view is the individual as the individual right. is sovereign um the individual um is a sovereign individual uh and that there is no natural authority over this individual now you do get christian um Christianized libertarians would make an exception for the authority of God. Um, but still, they don't go far enough because um, the thing is, the basic unit of society in the biblical and the covenantal view is not the individual, but the family. And I can explain this in a very practical way. How many, how many individuals do you know that we would, that would be born, be born as small babies and then left to their own sovereign will without any interference from a parent or a family member who would survive? None, none of us would survive if we were left to our to ourselves. You know, um, if you tell a little baby, look, you are born, um, you are now born as a sovereign individual, and we uh, intend not to infringe upon your rights and your liberties and your will, that baby won't survive a week. 
So, um, so we, so we are born into a family. We are designed by God to become human in complete dependence upon those uh, natural affections, if I can use the term of our parents in particular, um, in order to survive. Otherwise, um, human society would die off in a generation. So yes, the radical, um, the radical individualism of uh, libertarianism um, for me is, <coughs> excuse me, is a major um, philosophical problem. So that was um, <clears throat> the, the two major issues that I started running into libertarianism pretty early on. And I remember arguing with my other libertarian friends about this was, uh, number one, the, the issue of the effectualness of a libertarian-styled government uh, because a libertarian-styled government would only be able to react against perceived wrongs then yes, yes. it's really difficult to do anything and really acquire justice. Um, but the second issue that you just mentioned, I cannot remember if it was Mises or Hoppe, or Hoppe that, mm. that actually laid out an ethical reason within the libertarian framework as to why it would be just for a mother to abandon her child based on yeah. self-ownership. Well, uh, yeah. And, and I, I, that kept me... You know, by God's grace, that kept me from going ANCAP entirely yeah. Uh, yeah. because my Christian and anarcho-capitalist friends were actually arguing for that as a legitimate form of uh, social interaction. And that that's abhorrent to me. I don't see anything in the scriptures that would allow for that, number one. Uh, but number two, the idea of a mother letting her child die like that is uh, it's repulsive. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's different than murdering them functionally. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's a sign of a degenerate um culture, degenerate society. You know, for example, I learned the other day that um Jean Jacques Rousseau, um, which he was one of the uh, French philosophers who really articulated the uh, philosophical foundations of libertarianism um, in terms of, you know, the idea of the sovereign individual and so on. Um, and uh, Rousseau himself actually abandoned his four children. Um, yep. So Rousseau had four children and he really literally abandoned them as children. Um, and they... Uh, had to fend for themselves, uh, selves on the uh, on the streets of um, of Paris, and um, you know, I'm not sure how many died, how many survived, but um, Rousseau literally put the this you know libertarian idea of radical individualism, individual sovereignty, individual autonomy. He put this into practice um, with. You know, devastating consequences, and uh, indeed, right. as you mentioned, it is completely abhorrent. Um, so we're. <clears throat> I want to kind of bring this back in line with the questions we were going down because um, I, I, I apologize for that rabbit trail, but I think that was important to cover. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
so you know getting back to the topic of natural affections um from from the framework that we're talking about here uh are are natural affections imparted to humans as part of the created design or are they a result of the fall um so I think if you read um, Genesis 1, 2, 3, um, I think uh, the biblical um, history of um, uh, creation and um, pre-fall makes it very clear that the domestic associations or um, blood relationships which constitute the foundation of society um, the family are indeed rooted in God's design rather than, you know, result of the fall. Um, um, before uh, creation, um, uh, before the fall, um, God um, affirms that it's not good for Adam to be alone. To be a um, individual, um, a atomistic individual in the world, and um, so he creates Eve, um, and then we have the very first family, the very first um, covenantal uh, unit um, beyond the individual, the very first natural affection, but also um, the fact that the love of uh, between the father and his children um, so clearly reflect the image of God in man. You know, for me, that puts it beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only um, those closest uh, natural affections within the nuclear family itself, but also um, those affections within the context of extended families, um, which then form tribes and nations, um, organically and covenantally grow out of those natural relations which God so clearly already um, instituted um, prior to the fall. So for me, um, this is... Uh, most definitely part of God's creational design, and um, and they're not a result of sin entering the world. You know, um, in the right. New Testament, of course, um, Paul calls um, the distortion and neglection of natural affections. Um, he calls that the result of sin. Okay. Um, just as a kind of a, a, a side question, um, probably don't have a solid answer on this, but do you think that uh, different people existed for the separation of Babel, or was based significant enough events when these people became thoroughly established? Okay, so. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I actually heard your question. There was a little bit of an issue with the with the audio, but 
Um, so your uh, your question is whether Bible resulted in people groups or whether um, people groups had existed by God's design and um, and Babel was a kind of um, a, a distortion of God's created order and I I do take this latter view um, I think um, you know uh, in in Genesis 10 verse 5 um, Actually, I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, but I just realized I don't actually have a Bible with me right now. But in Genesis 10 verse 5, um, the scripture speaks about um, the, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth being um, uh, dispersed in their families, you know, um, in in accordance um, with their familial relationships. So um, I do believe that, um, you know, uh, what happened at Babel was we had the dispersion of peoples and the confusion of language in uh, alignment with, you know, um, God's covenantal uh, genealogical um, design for mankind. So, so to, put it, to put it simply, I don't think um, the situation at Bible was as such that you would start speaking Chinese and your dad would start speaking French and your sister would start speaking Norwegian and you know people would just have to run and find someone to understand him. You know I think um, it was more that families and clans and tribes that already existed um, started to speak a different language um, than other lands and tribes, and um, that they the purpose for the confusion of this language was so that those different nations could continue and cultivate each cultivate their unique um, national life to uh, the glory of God. So it it kind of seems uh, in line with what you're saying. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm I'm looking at Genesis 10 and 11 here. Uh, in Genesis 10, that's when, uh, you know, basically the sons of 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 Noah kind of split up. Yeah. Uh, and then in in 11, it 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 seems as if that that kind of tribal nature was already there. Uh, yes, and, that and is then, my understanding. And then the language is 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 uh, confused, uh, and you know I'm going to read from the King James. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all of the earth, and they left off to build the city. So they 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 were they were spread out already, 
yeah. uh, and the and Babel seems to be the the one unifying tie that kept them all one people. Yeah. And so God confused that their language and so broke that tie. Yes. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So that, so that goes right into this next topic that we were going to ask about. Um, you know, with Pentecost, uh, the the disciples of Christ were given the power to speak in languages that other can understand. Um, I, I'm kind of I kind of go back and forth with the exact way in which that should be understood. In one sense, you could understand that they were speaking other languages, but I tend to believe that it was God opening the ears of the people listening. Um, because the emphasis is on the people who believed, heard yeah. what was being said in their language. Um, so that barrier breaking, the, the language barrier being broken there, it, does that eliminate this familial tie that was started all the way back with Noah? Um, so we should always... It's always, there's always a danger um, that when we read the Bible from a certain cultural and historical standpoint that we might read something into the text that is not there. So the um, I think the entire of the idea of Pentecost and doing Babel is an example of that. Um, you rightly pointed out that, um, you know, um, the purpose of each of the people's understanding um, the apostles in their own language was so that the gospel could sanctify the nations. So, you know, even... Even the Great Commission um, is Christ commanding the disciples to disciple and baptize nations. Um, as you know, as you know, both individuals or families or communities or clubs or whatever. Um, but you know, if you if you think of this, the the idea that Christ abolished, as opposed to sanctified, creational distinctions through his redemptive work is is actually kind of absurd. Um, you know, and the idea that the only distinction for Christians are to be between believers and unbelievers. Um, the absurdity thereof becomes evident once you attempt to apply this in practice. Um, you know, I always mock, I always mock these um, New York City intellectuals um, like Tim Keller living in apartment blocks um, far away from nature far away from, you know, God's design for humanity. I always, I, I feel sorry for them because I think they, there's something, there's, 
something about big city life that seems to distance you from reality. Um, everything becomes so artificial because if you if you look at the practice, imagine imagine say the only distinction Christians should care about is between uh, the elect and the non-elect or between the believer and unbeliever. All right, so let's, let's, let's try and apply that in practice. One, property rights. Property rights would have to be abolished, right? Your property becomes my property. Your wife becomes my wife. I mean, we are all one in Christ. You know, the entire concept of gender or, or sex would have to be abolished. Um, because, you know, the divisions between men and women, you know, it, it, creates, uh, it creates distinctions, it creates, um, it creates social distinctions, you know, the biological differences um, has very significant social implications unrelated to, to whether um, the person is elect or not. Um, marriage and family would have to be abolished. Um, uh, the, you know, the preference you have for your own children over my children or the children in Nigeria or Cambodia, you know, that would uh, be have to be abolished. Um, in other words, if consistently applied in practice, the idea that distinctions um, are abolished in Christ is, first of all, it's completely ludicrous. Um, no sane person would, would um, well, at least no society would be able to function if we actually started doing that. And um, secondly, the idea is completely unbiblical. You know, it's functionally agnostic. You know, Gnostic, and I say this because, you know, Gnosticism um, identified the God of the Old Testament with the material world and the God of the New Testament with the spiritual. Um, so the old Gnostics also denied um, the uh, humanity of Christ. You know, they denied the bodily resurrection of Christ, um, arguing that he was only a spirit. Um, so, uh, so they said that, you know, material human beings, you know, being occupied with physical realities such as getting food and clothing and, you know, providing for your family, um, were of lesser importance to becoming enlightened and ex achieve, you know, um, Gnosticos or true spiritual knowledge. So, in other words, um, to the Gnostics, all material things were inherently um, sinful. And uh, you see the same tendencies in those who argue against, you know, the biblical doctrine of our natural affections. Um, uh, this is, you know, the same heresy that the early church recognized as as such. Um, and, uh, you know, the church father, um, Irenaeus, for example, um, 
He called Gnosticism um, despising the workmanship of God. And I believe, um, you know, um, uh, rejecting the doctrine of natural affections constitute the same thing. Um, and, you know, the implications of embracing new Gnosticism has been truly devastating to the church's attempts at fulfilling its calling in the world. Um, liberal theology's denial of the basic doctrines regarding creation, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ is um, fundamentally rooted in Gnostic presuppositions, um, as is the rejection of the Lordship of Christ. So contrary to the biblical command to exercise dominion over all creation, by doing all things, all things to the glory of God, um, Gnosticism degrades all earthly realities and actions as inherently unholy. So, you know, and the idea that one's ethnic identity or racial identity, um, you know, as identities that extend upon the clan, upon the tribe, and upon the family, the idea that these distinctions are done away with under the new covenant, um, so that it has no bearing upon our lives anymore, amounts to um, Gnosticism in the same way that saying our identity as part of a family is done away with in Christ. Um, so it is fundamentally anti-covenantal um, because if you read scripture, Scripture makes it very clear that lineage, descent, um, blood relationship with your ancestors is absolutely key to the covenant as a means by which God has ordained covenantal faithfulness and um, blessings uh, to proceed. I mean, we have... Entire chapters of the Bible consisting exclusively of genealogies. Um, um, you know, um, the New Testament. New Testament starts with the genealogy of Christ for right. the purpose yep. of of proving his uh, messianic uh, uh, position and calling. So I would go as far as to say that the oikophobic. A rejection of the covenantal centrality of the family, and by extension, the, the nation as well, lies at the very heart of the apostasy we have um, seen in the Western world over the past dec few decades. I mean, it's no, it's no coincidence that nations who tend to be more nationalistic are also more Christian. Um, and and I just, you know, just think about this for a minute. Consider, you know, the South, the South in the U.S., um, my own people, the Bird people, um, you know, the Northern Irish, the Hungarians, the Polish, um, these, these are still... You know, the most 
Christian nations in the Western world today, and they are also the most nationalistic. And the connection for me is obvious because um, nationalism entails a love for family, a love for people, and a love for place, a kind of um, governmental rootedness by which intergenerational faithfulness can flourish. And um, scripture scripture actually expressly says this in Acts um, Acts 26, uh, Acts 17, verse 26 to 27, um, where Paul describes God's providential act of separating the nations each into his own territory or homeland so that they can glorify God as covenantal unit created for that very purpose, you know, of glorifying God. So the object um, of the Great Commission, as I mentioned, is nations or ethnoi in the original Greek, um, from which we derive our word ethnicity. Um, So, yeah, for me, this is why um, also, you know, the Apostle Paul, condemns condemns the lack of natural affections. He does it twice. Um, he expressly condemns the lack of natural affections in Romans 1, 2 Timothy 3, verse 3, precisely because they disregard and rebel against the divinely ordained order for mankind and seek to create chaos through that rebellion um, against that order as designed, purposefully designed by God in his infinite wisdom. That, that's, a, that's a lot of good stuff there, man. Um, let me read a couple things from the chat and then we'll keep going. Um, yeah. So Tisk Tisk says the Tower of Babel rule was never abolished. Every time nations come together as one, the end result has always been an abomination. Uh, we're actually seeing that in the uh, yeah. the globalist. We call it the Homo Globo, uh, the Globo yeah. Homo rather. Um, uh, the then the wardrobe uh, says the emphasis in translation rendering is always to quote make disciples of all nations rather than disciple the nations, uh, which yeah. I, I like that as well. Um, wardrobe again, the, the book of revelation presupposes the tribal and national distinctions do not cease. Uh, I think the, the, um, the way that the new Jerusalem is talked about really lends itself towards that. Uh, yeah. And uh, since we are a Southern podcast, I definitely have to throw this one in there. Thank you for calling the South a nation, uh, because we are. Uh, they are. We you are, are a nation. Yeah. It's absolutely. Um, um, yeah, and then we just so you know, just on that point, um, I always tell Southern people, um, you should know that. Well, we have liberal boers as well, but um, for the most part, your average boer. Um, recognizes, we recognize the South as a distinct nation from the Yankees 
and um, we recognize you as brothers as well. As a, a be distant, we recognize you as kinsmen. Fantastic. Um, a couple of things I want to go back to uh, some of the comments you made. Uh, first, I want to hit on something real quick. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Travis. Yeah, um, so, okay, so getting back to what the wardrobe commented on, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the passage in Revelations, um, I said it again, Dad, I'm going to put an S at the end, the passage in Revelation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just say the apocalypse um, of John, brother. Right. Yeah. So, so we see, we see all all the all the all members of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping at worshiping at the at the throne of Christ, and we don't see barriers. Should we have barriers within our own public worship for different people groups, or should that something that should happen organically, but not forced? Like, I don't want to go Matt Chandler yeah. and have to have our token minorities yeah. within the congregation. But yeah. I, I was just curious to review on that. Yeah, so um, first of all, I, I'd agree that there's no barriers in the New Jerusalem, but there are most certainly um, distinctions. So um, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John um, in Revelation 7, um, it is the new Jerusalem is revealed to him and he sees the nations entering and then you um, see that great passage of um, Revelation 7 verse 9 uh, where John says people from every single tribe and tongue and nation um, entering and it's significant that he recognizes their distinctions there. You know, um, this is uh, often overlooked. You know, it's the fact that um, John is not saying, I saw thousands of people entering Jerusalem. He's not saying I saw a multitude of individuals or even men, women, and children. He's expressly identifying them um, by means of their ethnic identities, which makes it very clear that our ethnic identities um, continue in eternity. Um, but I, I agree, there's not a um, new Jerusalem, say, for... Um, for uh, the Spanish people or, you know, Jerusalem for the Chinese or Jerusalem for white people and one for black people. There is only one new Jerusalem in which every man, woman and child from every nation, every race, um, which call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Savior uh, will enter regardless of your ethno-linguistic background, every single person who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Um, that being said, um, the local church as a reflection of, uh, you know, God's redeem redemption of humanity, um, it's a very... Um, 
difficult question. Um, I I do believe that ideally a local church should be homogenous, should be ethnically as homogenous as possible. And I'll tell you why. Um, in the scripture, we have um, the principle of kin rule very clearly set out. So, uh, so when Israel chooses a leader, uh, selects again um, the law, the law of God tells them that this leader must be from their own brethren. And uh, you find that throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, whenever leaders are elected, um, leaders should be kinsmen. People who rule over the people should be kinsmen of that people. There are also very practical um, reasons for that. So when um, uh, the uh, great Southern Presbyterian Robert Lewis Dabney wrote against unity with the Northern Presbyterian Church, one of his main arguments was that they would have a, uh, and I'm quoting him verbatim, you would have black elders ruling over white women. Now, you can call that 19th century Southern bigotry, but he's actually touching on a very important biblical principle of kin rule. So because you have in the church a certain structure where elders rule the congregants um, and rule as, I would say, a moral stewards of, that, of those congregants, I do believe that homogenous uh, congregations where the principle of in rule can be applied is ideal. Um, that being said, you do, even here in South Africa, you find exceptional circumstances where there is one uh, reformed church in a, you know, 100 mile radius and it is, you could say, you know, all the members of the Reformed Church, you know, are white Afrikaner, poor people like myself, and um, and you have one black family in the community who um, converts to Reformed Biblical Christianity, and they want to attend um, worship. You know, they want to attend public worship, and and gain access to the sacraments. Um, you know, they want to be able to baptize their children. Um, they want to be able to, to, to partake um, uh, of communion. Um, and then I do believe it would be wrong for a local white church to deny them that right. Um, if you know, say the black family truly um, does show fruits of the faith and faith is Christ, then I think um, 
some kind of arrangement would have to be made, although I would prefer this always to be, you know, a temporary arrangement, if possible. Just in short, um, just to conclude my answer, um, I think homogeneous uh, churches are preferable, but no Christian should ever be denied, um, regardless of their race, should ever be denied access to uh, the sacraments or public worship. Okay. Uh, okay. I, uh, one comment, and I'll let you go. Yeah. Uh, that, that was that, that was that's pretty much the same line of thought that I have within the entire thing, um, and I think that's well within the bounds of orthodoxy. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is to is to try to figure out why the people are are claiming that people that hold to this doctrine are heretics, and that right there is a one of the ones that they always throw up, but. I can't find anyone that says they'll withhold the sacraments simply because they come from a different ethnos. If someone yeah. says that, I believe that to be heresy. But um, you know, me, me, and you would would pretty much agree on the same thing. We should, we can't, we can't treat brothers in Christ regardless of their cultural background um, yeah. as second class citizens in the kingdom. Uh, I believe that was one of the biggest disputes that uh, Peter and Paul had next. But um, Lucas, you had something to say? Yeah, I, I wanted to to pull back and just comment on a on a source of alignment here. You know, a little little while back when you first started started getting into this, uh, you brought up the connections with Rousseau and uh, the, the the French revolutionaries. Uh, it's an interesting overlap. Uh, while there were some differences, such as uh, the revolutionaries in France tended to be uh, much more hedonistic, uh, the I'm just going to call them the commies in yeah. the United yeah. the United States they were more austere. Um, the abolitionist movement uh, and the prohibitionist movement were mm. basically the same people. And they were tightly woven together with the Shakers, Quakers, Seventh-day Adventists. Um, uh, the the I think they were even with uh, the the uh, Oneness Pentecostals, Unitarians. Um, there's a lot of these uh, groups that held to Christological heresies. Such as phenotheism yeah. and and um, Gnostic beliefs that the Quakers and the Shakers got into, mm -hmm. uh, and this is what Dabney was talking about when he talked about Yankee theologians. Um, yeah, and this also had some overlaps into the Puritans, and it, it, while they had some good uh, doctrinal points, uh, one of the issues that I've had with the Puritans for for a while now. Um, has been their rejection of uh, the distinctions in ethnos, let's say, and yeah. the this this whole idea of the universal brotherhood of men, where it it's it's almost like uh, with the Puritans, I I often get the impression that the only thing that matters is soteriology and everything else is unimportant. 
And so it gets swept under the rug and swept out of the way and nothing else matters. So, I, uh, yeah. I, um, I don't know how, how you want to comment on that, but that was just something I wanted to bring in to tie in a few yeah, points it's, together. It's yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's actually, it's a dangerous, um, territory well i i consider it dangerous territory because i have um leveled similar similar criticisms against the puritans that you have uh, mentioned just now and um some of my uh, i'd say fellow warriors in the struggle for christ's kingdom have um taken quite strong uh, well, uh, I'm strongly objected against exactly this characterization of the Puritans. So, I'm, um, in order to stay out of trouble, I'm not going to comment too much on that. But what I will say, what I will say is this: um, uh, it is striking how universalism and unitarianism rose to the forefront in new england in the 18th and 19th centuries you know how universalist unitarianism um unitarians completely transformed um new england society um in the 19th century and you know these people were the descendants of puritans for the most part um so that is that is there is definitely um something there there's i think uh, i think you're definitely onto something yeah okay um so let's well, just kind of go ahead uh, just one quick comment well i commented in the chat and um and I was saying too much focus on soteriology. I didn't phrase it that way, but uh, too much focus on soteriology is, is the exact problem of the SBC right now is they've given up confessionalism and, and yeah. they don't have a full-orbed understanding of the religion that they're practicing, but they're only focused on the Great Commission. I think you should focus on the Great Commission in your everyday life. But that's not all there is to Christianity. Like there's there's the whole discipleship aspect that most people just completely throw out the window and, and they've reduced it all to basically like, um, you know, okay, you're saved now. Now you need to go get other people saved. You know, it's like the whole, I don't know if you've watched a Rick Warren speech, but it was all like, oh, we've yeah. sent so many missionaries and I trained all these pastors. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, um, they they don't understand what Christ did. You know, um, you mentioned um, Christ, Christological heresies. You know, um, the idea that Christ only came to, you know, save us from sin, and now we we are now that we are saved, we have to get as many people. Um, as we can save the nothing, nothing else matters. It's actually fundamentally at odds with um, the redemption of the world by Christ. Um, 
you know, um, um, Paul, the Apostle Paul does write that he counts all things but dung in comparison to the excellency and the knowledge of Christ. But as always, you know, we have to read Scripture in context. And, you know, remember that Scripture clarifies itself. So in the context of Scripture, it becomes clear that Paul was speaking by means of hyperbole. I used to pronounce this word as hyperbole, but my wife actually corrected me. It's an hyperbole. It's an um, exaggeration, you know, a, a rhetorical exaggeration. He was saying that, but Paul was saying is that in comparison to Christ's righteousness, all that we have is worthless. So um, it's all, also remember, remember that he was speaking of the merits of salvation um, and the fact that we are saved by grace alone and contribute nothing to our own salvation. You know, the same, the same apostle Paul uses another hyperbole in Romans 3 verse 9, where he states that he would be willing to be accursed from Christ. Um, and you should hear this. Paul says he'd be willing to be accursed from Christ for the sake of his kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, of course, um, this does not literally mean that he counts, then in Romans counts, the righteousness of Christ less than his natural affections for his kingdom, for his uh, kinsmen. So as the text in Philippians um, clarifies, but it does show that Paul as redeemed in Christ retained a natural affection for his own people and his own nation. And um, he counted that not only in harmony with his Christianity, not only in harmony with his Christianity, but as a very duty of being a Christian. He um, writes in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 that, you know, everyone, if anyone doesn't provide for his own, especially for his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So I think um, the, the, uh, it, it makes it very clear that the redemption of the world in Christ, um, not only does it not nullify our uh, affections and obligations towards our kinsmen, but it actually amplifies and sanctifies um, those uh, relationships and duties. And, um, and yes, and 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, you know, this very passage actually extends the logic of taking care of your own immediate household, that is your family. It extends this to caring for your people. Um, 
as well. So he says, uh, because he says, if anyone doesn't provide for his own, especially his house, he has denied the fame. So he's um, speaking of your family as well as your people and the duties that we as Christians have um, uh, as redeemed individuals in Christ because, you know, Christ not only saves us for our own sake, you know, it's not like, um, you know, Jesus came to earth, you know, um, and because he loves us so much, now we can go to heaven, you know, it's, that is true, that is true, but the divine, the divine purpose behind our very salvation is that we can live lives um, as redeemed, as a redeemed people of God in our um, sanctified, covenantal, and natural relations to the glory of God um, and manifest the glory of God through that, which is, of course, the very purpose for which we have been saved. Okay, I want to get some uh, chat comments in here. Um, I, I, well, I know I'm kind of interrupting our flow a little bit, but I think this was a good point. Uh, to yeah, no, it's fun. Uh, yeah. High trust societies or groups such as the local, such as the local church, can uh, can only be truly successful if, if uh, homogeneous. Uh, otherwise, high levels of trust simply cannot manifest themselves. Couldn't agree more. Um. Uh, Tisk Tisk says there's a reason the Puritans weren't welcome in England. That's very true. Um, wardrobe again. The New England uh, Puritans were the great-grandfathers of secular Yankees. Uh, Dabney identifies some of that as well in his writings. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, and then uh, great argument for Kism, uh, Kenism, to be honest. Uh, if but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than the infidel. Uh, yeah, one Timothy five eight is. Yes. So there, there's a there's a couple of, uh, just a little bit of history. Uh, I, I know we may have talked about this before, but a little bit of history for me personally. Um, you know, several years ago, I started a, a sizable. Uh, Calvinism group on Facebook. It's still up and running. I think it's still one of the largest ones that's out there. Uh, one of the reasons why I became kind of estranged from the online reform community is because I was one of the few guys who would actually defend chemists. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was, I was called racist for just associating with them. Uh, I don't particularly mind being called racist, although I don't think I would classify... Uh, even some of the more liberal definitions of racism, I, I don't think I would be qualified under that. Um, but as a as a as a point, the, this the, the the two passages that you brought up, where Paul uh, basically says, "I'd give up my seat in the kingdom for my kinsmen," and you know this this defense of uh, or this rather this condemnation of someone who doesn't take care of his own uh, these two passages when I would bring them up to someone as a defense of chemists not of kinism but of chemists uh, 
yeah. and saying, can you not at least see where they're coming from here and seeing how they can get that from the passages, uh, there would be no form of exegesis of the text. There would be no uh, uh, even acknowledgement that Paul would have would have willingly given up his seat in heaven to save his kinsmen. Uh, that was disregarded, you know, and the, and the yeah. passage that was always brought up was there's neither Jew nor Greek, which, of course, they don't really want to do that unless they're going to go Tim Keller fully, uh, because it, yeah. right after that it says there's neither male nor female. So that that creates some really I serious issues there as well. Um, so I, I'm I'm kind of I, I guess from my my side, I'm, I really resonate with what you're saying here. Um and I, I have some traditional distinctions. Uh, so I, I have some philosophical distinctions between what a lot of people view as uh, ethnos. Um, so to, to kind of bring this in, because I want to get your reaction to this, um, E. Michael Jones defines an ethnos as a, a culture and language, essentially. How would you respond to that? Um, yeah, well, I'm glad. I'm really glad you're asking this question. Um, I could do a long response, but I'm going to keep it very, very simple. Um, okay. The Bible clearly defines um, an ethos as people with a common descent, people with a common biological ancestral heritage, um, which is why um, nations in scripture are classified as Israelites, Moabites, Canaanites, so for me, it is, scripture makes it very, very clear that ancestry is what makes a nation. Now, obviously, um, language is going to play a major part. Um, culture is going to be a product of um, your culture for me is a product of your religion as it um, sanctifies or degenerates your ethnos. So, um, so I believe every nation in the world has its own natural, unique appetites, strengths, weaknesses, just like families, mind you. Um, you know, uh, how often do you find, you know, um, if someone had a very athletic father who were good at sports he'd have a son who'd be good at sports you know you i mean there's millions of examples of how certain strengths and weaknesses run in families um it's the same with nations um and um so yeah i believe god covenantally uses um, lineage um, as a means of bestowing governmental blessings and curses 
upon nations for either obedience or disobedience to his law in the generations. You know, I mean, we have the beautiful, beautiful promise in um, in uh, Exodus 20 of faithfulness unto a thousand generations um, on the part of God. So, um, so, yeah, for me, just the sheer fact that the scripture as inspired by the Spirit of God clearly defines nations in terms of lineage and ancestry and you don't you don't even have to read past the very names given to the nations in scripture to to realize that okay uh, that's a good answer and i i need to dwell on that you know maybe there's some areas i need to grow uh, which is part of the reason why we have these discussions um mm. So um yeah, suggest so suggest so I'm not I'm not saying language um or or culture is irrelevant, um but I do I do believe um, that um lineage is the uh, is the defining characteristic. You know, just just to explain my answer. Oh. Yeah, no 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 that, that I, I got that. Um I, I, I guess uh, where I'm coming from is, uh, you know, I, I'm still not, <laughs> uh, I, I'm still not there, right? We all have areas. Yeah, yeah. And so um, yeah. my, my concern is not what is the modernist way of viewing things? My concern is what does the text say and how do I live yeah. that out? Um, and there's a, there's a, you know, there's an abstraction that we have, right? Of our theological abstractions we want to make, um, uh, propositions and we want to make arguments, uh, but then there's yeah. the mechanics of living that out. So how do those two interact? That's my concern. Uh, so yeah. when I hear something like what you're saying from the scriptures, that's a compelling argument to me. And I, and the, so I, I need to examine myself because I haven't heard it phrased that way. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of giving me pause in a way because I would have been more, along the lines of E. Michael Jones when it comes to ethnos. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty convincing argument. Um, so Thank you very I, much. I appreciate the, uh, the positive feedback. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is a discussion, right? We're not, we're not really, we have a, so just for everybody listening, I mean, we have some things that we put in here. We want to give some kind of structure to it. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're going back and forth. I want this to be a real conversation. Um, yeah. So what what are some of the differences in the way that we should treat those of our own people inside the church versus outside of the church? Um, well, yeah, well, um, uh, I suppose um, the relevant framework and principle with which to answer that question would be how you would treat um, immediate family members. Um, well, not even necessarily immediate family members, but, you know, extended um, family members who are outside the church versus inside the church. Um, if you... If you, for example, have two 
cousins with which you grew up with and, you know, you're pretty close with. One is a believer, one um, is apostate. Um, obviously, it is going to affect your relationship um, tremendously because, you know, as Christians, we live for the glory of Christ and for bringing all things under his lordship. So if, if someone rejects Christ, that makes it pretty difficult to maintain a, a affectionate relationship. Um, it, is, it is a pretty significant aspect um, of our being. But um, so obviously, obviously, um, you're going to have more. You're going to have sanctified, sanctified natural affections with family members who are believers, and um, your relationship with those who are unbelievers are going to be completely different. Although, although. If your cousin or your brother or your son is apostate, they do not not be, suddenly not become your son or your brother or your cousin. They right. still are. Um, they still are, even if they are apostate. So, and it, it hurts, you know, it hurts, I think, having, um, you know, having children who reject the faith is probably one of the worst things any parent can go through. So you're, you're going to, you're going to maintain natural affections to kinsmen who are unbelievers, um, as Paul does clearly in scripture because when he when he says that he's you know um willing to be a curse from christ for his kinsmen he's actually in that particular passage expressly speaking about unbelievers he's expressly speaking about his kinsmen who have not accepted christ so obviously we maintain some kind of um natural affection but it it is it is it is difficult and what then what this natural affection then in practice would translate into manifest into would be a sincere desire for your family member for your kinsman to repent and believe in Christ. So you would prioritize, you would prioritize calling your son or your brother or your cousin to repentance and talking to them about the truth of scripture, about redemption, redemption in Jesus Christ. You'd prioritize them in your evangelism efforts over going to um, Cambodia or Ivory Coast in Africa to do missionary efforts there. So I think 
It is absolutely disgraceful. And um, my apologies for being so blunt, but it is absolutely disgraceful. Uh, the church in the West has spent millions of dollars trying to evangelize people in Africa and in Asia, while their own neighbors, people in their own neighborhood, apostatized from the faith. I think it's absolutely disgraceful, and I do believe God will hold the church accountable for that. I, I think we had a, an entire podcast about that. Am I right, Travis? Uh oh, did we lose? Sorry, you? I, I went. No, I wound up like not mute, unmuting myself. Anyways, uh, we did. We did have a podcast about that technical diff, a boomer moment. Um, <laughs> but, um it, it essentially, like, why? Why should like? Okay, so I would have a gospel effect for a reformed Christian in uh, in Botswana. Right, but I don't have a natural affection towards them because I've never met them, nor have they of the same tribe as me. So why would I send my my hard-earned money, which is a representation of my time, to someone down in Botswana whenever I have, you know, a hundred people in my county that's never heard the gospel before? Yeah, you know, natural-born Alabamians. Why? Why would I? Why would I prioritize some? It, um, I don't know if I cut out there or not, but um, you cut down yeah, a little bit. Well, but keep yeah, going. It's, it's the whole te- te- uh, it's the whole telescopic philanthropy thing that uh that Charles Dickens coined. Uh, we're we're so we we you know use our telescopes to go to the deepest darkest jungles, but yet you know we don't care about our own starving poor. Um, yeah, yeah, it's disgraceful. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, you know, it's lazy is what it is. If we really want to get down to it, because we don't want to put the work in to actually clean up our own community. We're instead just going to throw money at the problem and hope it actually solves it. But has it ever actually solved it? It's interesting that we would spend so much time and effort and money into being lazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, and so, so just just to continue on um something uh, you thought touched upon just now. Um well while maintaining a natural affection for a unbelieving family member or kinsman, you still do have a spiritual bond and a spiritual affection with a believer in Christ in Botswana that you don't have with um, an unbelieving kinsman. So you do, there is that spiritual affection of being part of the body of Christ, being united in Christ. Um, but there is um, this text in in um, another book, New Testament book written by Paul in um, um, Philemon, um, where, uh, where he writes about the slave uh, Onesimus. 
I, I'm not, I, I read my Bible in Afrikaans. I'm hoping, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing the names right. This is slave uh, Onesimus. So Paul writes to um, Philemon and he tells him um, that except the him, because he had sent Onesimus away and uh, Paul is sending Onesimus back, He's, he says, accept him as a brother in the faith and in the flesh. Um, he distinguishes that he um, a physical as well as a spiritual brotherhood. Um, so in, in the Bible, in the Bible itself, you you find this distinction um, uh, between a physical, uh, natural affection, and then spiritual affection, or as the uh, um, guys that. What's that group's name? Eat, pray, love. What are they? Would call it a gospel affection. Um, right. So you do, you do. Yeah, fight, love, feast. I know. I, I forgot about. I forgot it. But I'm saying eat, pray, love because they sound like. Um, they sound like these Hollywood Hindus. You know. Um, these Hollywood celebrities embrace Hinduism and become kind of. Um, spiritually enlightened and talk about all these strange gay concepts. You know, the guys at Fight Love Feast sound like them um, when they start talking about gospel affections, but it is spiritual, spiritual affections is a very real thing, but there is no way you can read scripture in context. Um, and even even just the New Testament, you know, the Old Old Testament is even more explicit about this. But even just the New Testament, um, there's no way, there's no way you can read this and come to the conclusion that, you know, redemption in Christ and being united with the body of Christ, um, nullifies natural affections, um, firstly for the family and um, by extension uh, for your tribe. There's just, just it's, you'd be, um, you'd be doing the uh, text a grave dishonor um, and practicing horrific eisegesis if, if, uh, if you come to this, um, conclusions in my book at least okay well the last little bit we had to cover is how does this uh the, the doctrine of natural affections um affect our choice in uh marriage partner um and how and are you opposed to interracial marriage yeah well um i think first of all let me let me say that I believe that uh, modernism and modern society has completely messed up our view of marriage as such. Um, so you often hear the idea that marrying marrying in the Lord, as the Scripture commands, simply means you should marry another Christian with whom you are in love. You know, I once, 
I once had a discussion about this very topic um, of interracial marriage with a um, woman from church, and um, she said uh, there are two things. There are just two things you need um, in a marriage partner. You know, um, they should be a Christian, and you should be in love. And uh, I believe this is a completely skewed view of marriage brought about by Hollywood's narrative of um, of um, of marriage as such, effectively being a willing um, contract between sovereign individuals. Um, yeah. So the idea the idea is that Christians should have um, love based marriages. Um, just like the world, um, obviously love is a key ingredient and perhaps the key ingredient um, in um, in a marriage. Um, but then, you know, saying that, you know, this sounds familiar, right? As long as two people love each other, they can get, get married. You know, that's, that's the argument that the um, people have used for sodomic, um, you, uh, unions as well, but what we what we mean in the church is um, we say that we yeah we can have love based marriages, but the only condition is is that the other person should be uh, a Christian. But um, this entire um, view of marriage has led to no fault divorce widespread adultery, fornication, and now, of course, sort of my unions. But ultimately, we got here by embracing a view of marriage and of sex as really serving the individual's needs rather than marriage being a covenantal institution and a covenantal act. So people think um, returning to traditional marriage means returning to the idea that a marriage is between one man and one woman, but it's actually much more than that. Um, traditional marriage means actually doing away with the idea that marriage is a contract between sovereign individuals altogether. Um, uh, this, this idea of marriage has been utterly destructive for Christendom. So, um, because we have now failed for generations to see children and covenantal procreation as central to marriage, um, we have reached the point where all Western nations are facing extin extinction simply because um, we have birth rates below replacement level. Um, right. So just, just think about this for a moment. If um, if the choice of a marriage partner was to be a purely personal decision separated from the covenantal context of the family, what prevents us from or young people from choosing unwisely you know, um, if people are encouraged to expect marriage to simply be the best and happiest experience of their lives, 
what would hold a marriage together if things went for worse as opposed to for better? Um, so we have, we have really cheapened marriage. We have cheapened sex. Um, I honestly believe um, that a nation, a culture, a culture where fornication is common, you know, premarital um, fornication, um, such a culture has no idea of what marriage is. They have no idea what the sanctity of marriage means. And quite frankly, they have no idea to preach to other cultures and, and different generations about what a marriage should be. So it's no coincidence for me that um, in societies where interracial marriage um, have become more accepted, this has coincided with all other uh, kind of degeneracies being increasingly uh, accepted because um, the heart of the problem is that such societies have completely forgotten what marriage is all about. Um, you know, as a covenantal union with a social and ontological purpose to provide the context for the rearing of godly covenantal children. Um, and this is Malachi you're talking you about, right? Uh, yeah, uh, the, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he talks about the, the, the whole purpose, you know, you turn your heart towards your children and you yeah. deal, you know, he, he, he talks about uh, not dealing treacherously with your wife, which we, when you really get into that, he's talking about, you know, you, you act like a man whore. I'm just going to be honest about it. Yeah, you, yeah, you have yeah. eyes for other women and, you know, in some cases they were actually engaging in prostitution you know, engaging with prostitutes. Yeah. Um, and this, this was why God shut the heavens uh, for that 400 year period. And the, the promise of the new, the new covenant was to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and bring unity between the father and the mother so that you would bear godly, godly offspring. I mean, that's, that's exactly what God, God's, prophecy was that's what exactly what malachi's prophecy from god was to the people of israel uh yeah. and that's what brought in the new covenant that's what ushered it in as a harbinger was john being named john by zacharias oh yes 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 that is very true that is that's actually a very good point i've never thought about that uh, I'm I'm pulling it from Dabney. I mean, this was his. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, this is his whole thing about uh, uh, family. Uh, he his whole sermon on Malachi. Uh, yeah. I'm not I'm not Presbyterian. I'm a Baptist. Yes. Uh, but yeah. when I talk to my my Baptist brothers, they are all you know they think I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> they oh, think yeah, I'm Presbyterian. I can, well, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to add to I know I was kind of interrupting there, but I, I wanted to add to oh, yeah. what you were saying because I, it, I, it feels like that's where you're pulling this from. Uh, and he explicitly yeah. says that in Malachi. Yes, yes, that is, that is, that is true. Yes, and that is um, very much the argument um, 
that I'm making is in accordance with with the prophet Malachi. So, but um, you know, when you um, understand that a nation is a covenantal unit designed by God, and a nation is nothing but an extension of the family, and that families are the basis of nations. Um, and nations are defined by ethnic characteristics. Um, it can be logically deduced that one of the chief primary and most central considerations when it comes to the choice of a marriage partner would then be their ethnicity or at least their race. Um, when marrying within within your own ethnicity isn't isn't possible. So I don't know. I don't know if people if people notice this. It seems like modern society failed to notice this. But um, um, white people um always have white children. This happens without exception. Um, black people have. Have black children, Asian people have Asian children, um, all who reflect um, the image of of their parents. And um, but the only exception to this, the only people who don't have children who look like themselves are um, those who engage in uh, interracial marriages. Only in such cases do children not reflect the physical image of either the father or the mother. Um, and this is um, not only, you know, in terms of um, visible, visible things, but also in a biological sense, um, because scientifically, scientifically, um, Children who are born um, out of interracial marriages have difficulty finding bone marrow donors, um, for example, because um, their their parents um, bring to a very significantly significant degree biologically cut off from their children can't um, donate um, bone marrow. Um, if they if their children were to need this um so you you can only you can only take bone marrow donations from within your own race um so biracial children need to find another biracial person um, to donate because their parents and grandparents can't um because and this is for me scientifically also um Testifies to a kind of biological break um, between parents and children in in such a case. Um, you know, the early church father um, Cyprian described uh, the purpose of procreation itself as uh, reflecting God's design and redemption of the world. And then he goes on to speak about. Um, how it is a source of joy for men to have children. Um, 
like unto themselves, who reflect their image, and that this analogy points to the uh, spiritual um, rebirth in the image of God our Father in Christ. But um, as you know, R.J. Rush, whom I mentioned earlier, he points out that the very design of the social order by God um, and the divinely ordained function of marriage in maintaining that social order, and I quote, militates against marriages across cultures and across races where there is no common association possible. Rajdini says that this new unit is a continuation of the old unit, but an independent one. And there has to be a unity or else it is not a marriage. Thus, the intent of many today to say, that, say there is nothing in the Bible against mixed marriages, whether religiously or culturally, is altogether unfounded. You do not even have to go to the text of Scripture to demonstrate that. We do not even have to go to the Mosaic law to demonstrate that. Because the very beginning um, in Genesis, we are told that um, the wife must be um, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Eve must be bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That is, says Rajdini, sharing his faith, sharing a common background, a common culture, a common desire to fulfill his calling under God. Um, this then is the meaning of marriage in the biblical sense. So, um, uh, yeah, that's the end of Rajdini quotes. But uh, even though the Bible never expressly condemns interracial marriage as sinful, it doesn't ever cons uh, expressly condemn, for example, um, polygamy as sinful um, either. So even so, like with polygamy, we find certain biblical principles which point us to the sinfulness of both. Um, think of the example. Think of the example where the Pharisees confronted Jesus, and they asked him about the permissibility of divorce and remarriage. Now, they knew the Pharisees knew that there was no Bible verse expressly condemning their liberal position on divorce and remarriage. Yet, Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus appeals to Adam and Eve's archetypical marriage to condemn them. So out of Adam's rib, God created woman and presented her to her husband, Adam. Adam commented upon meeting his wife. Genesis 2 verse 23, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now this is a significant declaration because of the way this expression, bone of my bone, or flesh of my flesh, is used in the rest of Scripture. Um, there is a cardinal exegetical principle in 
Reformed Theology, which we call the Analogia Scriptura. Analogia Scriptura means that Scripture is always interpreted by Scripture. So when we look at this expression, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, um, in the rest of Scripture, it always, always indicates a kinship relation, always an ethnic and a kinship relation. It is the phrase that Laban uses to articulate his relationship with his nephew Jacob when Jacob came for a while. Um, it is significant um, for Jacob was commanded by his parents to seek out someone from among their kinsmen to marry. And he was expressly forbidden from marrying a Canaanite. Right. So Laban assures Jacob that they are his kin by using the expression bone and flesh. You'll also find this in Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, the principle of kin rule. Um, there you find the bone and flesh paradigm again, uh, where the Israelites are commanded to select a king from their, their own kinsmen. Um, and when David is, King David is then consecrated in 2 Samuel 5, verse one, he says, Behold, I am thy bone and thy flesh. So, um, like divorce and polygamy, both of which go counter to God's design for marriage, interracial marriage can at the very most, this is my position, can at the very most be allowed only in the most absolute extraordinary circumstances where marriage within one's own tribe and race are literally impossible. This is because interracial marriages violates the standard for, uh, provided for us by God in the archetypical marriage of our first parents, Adam and Eve, to which Christ himself appeals as perpetually normative. So yes, I believe in accordance with the wisdom expressed by Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, we have a moral oblig obligation to marry someone who is in some way a kinsperson of ours related um, by uh, genealogically related, so as to reflect the covenantal purpose of God with families where children reflect the physical image of their parents in the same way that the children of God spiritually reflect his image in his son, Jesus Christ. But as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, I think a lot of aversion to the anti-miscegenation position, which I, um, which I advocate for, would be cleared out of the way if Christians 
simply started to reclaim the orthodox doctrine of marriage itself as a sacred um, and divinely ordained covenantal institution and sex, you know, intercourse as a sacred covenantal union intrinsically related to procreation and the creation of a healthy, God-glorifying social order. Excellent. I think we covered uh, pretty much everything that I think we could cover tonight. We are approaching uh, two hours and 15 minutes. Well, so, we've been at it for a while now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it is uh, 11, 11, my time. And uh, it's I, I have church in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have church in um, three and a half hours. It's actually um, 11 minutes past six in the morning where I'm at. Yeah. Well, so before before we let you go, uh, would you mind doing some hot seat questions? No, no, that, that actually sounds great. I'll do it, yes. So there's two rules uh, to hot seat. Uh, first rule is you can't think about your, your answer before you say it. It has to be the first thing off the top of your head. Oh, because uh, remember I talk slow. No, 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 that's fine. Uh, and the, the second is that um, you have to be completely honest. No sarcasm. Okay. All right. All right. That sounds good. Uh, all right. So the first question is uh, regarding eschatology. Are you pre-mill, all-mill, or correct mill? Post-mill. What was the post-mill was the third option, right? I'm post-mill. Uh, uh, post mill, post mill is also known as the correct mill. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Uh, the second question is, uh, who wrote Hebrews? Paul. I, I, that's actually that is my position. Um, you know, interestingly, can I can I make a comment on that? Yeah, sure. Go um, ahead. So I'm in the Dutch Reformed background, and um, we have a, a, a confessional standard, the Belgic Confession. And the Belgic Confession was uh, written by um, a guy named Guido de Brie. And um, he sent this entire confession of 37 articles to John Calvin to read and, and, you know, evaluate. And the really wrote in the confession that Paul was the author of Hebrews. So Calvin wrote him back. Now, you remember this is like a 37-article confession. It's like, you know, 25, 30 pages. And Calvin writes him back and says, this is great. Only thing I have an issue with is that you say that Paul wrote Hebrews. So Calvin didn't believe that, but I do. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I have a difference of opinion there, but that's okay. Uh, yeah. my, my next question is, is okay, a little bit of background. Uh, Mr. Lincoln was a, uh, was a well, well-renowned wrestler. 
back in his day. And then President Davis was a war hero. Who would win in a fist fight between Mr. Lincoln and President Davis? Davis, without a shadow of doubt. Fantastic. I'm going to drop one more in there uh, because this is a Southern a Southern channel. Uh, and, and this last one, uh, in terms of history and um, critique, um, Richard Weaver, Thomas de, de Soakville, or uh, uh, Soul? De Tocqueville. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I, I actually, why? I'm curious. <laughs> I think, no, well, I'm going to be dead honest. I know the Tugville better than the other authors. Um, okay. So I'm not, I'm not so familiar with the other authors, although I know who they are, but I'm, I'm not qualified to express a, um, I'm not qualified to publicly express an opinion. So I actually went with the Tugville because um, I know him well enough. Yeah, so that's yeah. You said I should be honest. That's my honest answer. Oh no, that's that's uh, fine. It's all good. Uh, a few uh, comments from the chat, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Yeah. Um, so I, I had to I had to put this one in there. Um, so Tisktis says I'm like a Kenneth leaning Stephen Anderson, almost verbatim theologically. And I asked him, uh, "Do you piss against the wall?" Uh, it, he didn't know what I was I was referring to. Uh, I just had to throw that in there because it's funny. <laughs> um, if you've seen that clip, Adi, it's it's hysterical. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll try and check it out. Um, uh, uh, well, one thing that it happened a little bit earlier in the chat, but uh, they were wanting to know how can they support you and the Pactum Institute if we're in the states. Um. Yeah. So. Um, Email me, go to, um, um, you know, pactuminstitute.com. There's, there's uh, all our contact details are there. So um, uh, there's no, a link on uh, the Pactum Institute website. Um, Pactum is P-A-C-T-U-M. Pactuminstitute.com. Um, there's a link to uh, membership options. We've got... Um, the option of becoming a member of the Pactum Institute um, by contributing um, to our research uh, we annually or monthly or so on. Um, in terms of the actual contribution, uh, we've set up um, various payment options. So, so you don't, if you're in the United States, you don't need um, to contribute and pay fees for international payments you know we have options uh to to pay into a u.s bank account as well instead as the united states bank account so, so we have easy options if you'd like um to contribute to the pactum institute just um visit our website uh you'll find all the details there and uh, my email address at the institute as well People, people can reach out to me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one last question from the chat. Uh, not uh, uh, Pengu writes, uh, not related to theonomy, 
but what can a non-South African do to contribute to help with the struggle of the Boers and Afrikaners? You know, that is, yeah, that is a very, very um, difficult question because, um, you know, we, we do face an immense, immense struggle, but I, I don't want to, I always dislike asking international, you know, donations, monetary donations for the Burr people, um, for the simple reason that um, we are, we are a very innovative um, nation. And even though we've been lar largely excluded from, you know, the job market and from any civic positions in this country, our entrepreneurs are doing extremely well. So we have, we have a lot of, I'm not one of them, unfortunately, but we do have a lot of wealthy, really, really wealthy um, Bur people in this country. So, um, and we have a lot of um, charity organizations set up and we are still in a position to take care of our own people, um, which is our duty. So we are we're still in a position to um, fulfill that duty. So I would say, first of all, um, the big thing, the big thing that people internationally and in America and in Europe can do is raise awareness, you know, raise awareness. When you talk to people, um, tell them about the plight of the poor people, show them the examples of what happened to South Africa when our people were completely demographically replaced and a Marxist government came into power and try and learn from those mistakes in order to avoid making themselves. Because the, the, the reality is, quite frankly, the entire Western world, as it is, the entire Western world is steering in the very same direction that South Africa went. So it's, it's important to raise awareness and try and avoid those mistakes. Um, so, yeah, so that is, that is for me um, the big thing. And pray for us. You know, our only hope, our only deliverance is ultimately in covenantal repentance to God and in uh, proclaiming our dependence upon him and rebuilding our people in accordance with his law. So praying for us that we will do that um, is, is uh, I think, the biggest thing uh, anyone can do for my people right now. Well, I certainly have been praying for you, brother, for, for years now. Um, and so I, I will continue that. Um, well, this has been a very, very good conversation. Um, I, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, Adi, thank you for coming on. Thank you for uh, lending us your comments uh, and your in your mind for these two hours and well, two and a half hours now. Uh, anything else you'd like to say before we go? No, except of course for um, 
thanking you guys um, for the opportunity to be on the Dixie Palace podcast. Um, I have actually listened to a few of your shows in the past, and um, I really enjoyed the work that you, Travis, and the Lucas um, are doing. Keep doing it, and uh, God willing, um, it's been a pleasure and honor, but God willing, I hope to be on the show again uh, sometime in future. We'd be happy to have you, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, everybody, uh, this is it for today. Travis, anything? Nope. Glad, glad you came on, and uh, sorry for the technical difficulties. Uh, kind of remained quiet a lot because of my internet situation but uh uh glad to have you on and um hope to hear from you again shortly thank you thank you very much um same same for my end hey y'all thanks for listening in on our podcast if you like what you hear please share and comment wherever you're listening to it and check out our gab page at dixie polis podcast if you want to contact us please send an email to dixiepolis at protonmail.com or send us a message on gab if you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at southernraisedbluegrass.com. God bless y'all.